Coffee, Cows, and Crops is produced by the Peace Country Beef and Forage Association and hosted by Extension Coordinator Johanna Murray. On this podcast, we discuss management practices and research results with scientists, ranchers, researchers, and farmers. We strive to share innovative information and farming practices supported by sound science and practical wisdom. So grab a cup of coffee and let's get learning. everybody. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Coffee, Cows, and Crops. Uh, I have Dr. Gail McInnes from Grand Prairie Regional College here today, and we're going to chat about native bees and how pollinators function in natural and agricultural systems. But before we get into all that fun stuff, Gail, would you like to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about how you got into pollinator research? Sure. Um, It's kind of a a complex story about how I really got into it, but I'll try to keep it short. Uh, I'm originally from Cape Breton. I think all of us end up in Alberta at some point or other. From the <laughs> east. Uh, so I actually started my schooling in astrophysics in, in Halifax. Yeah, I watched too much Star Trek as a child and I thought I was going to be an astronaut. Didn't quite work out that way. Uh, but then I ended up doing more uh, physics and astronomy in school. And I, I fell on this project on the aerodynamics of wind pollination. So I did, yeah, I did most of my master's work on wind pollinated crops. So coniferous trees are wind pollinated, wheat, corn. So a lot of our our more boring food plants are wind pollinated. And then through that, I was introduced to uh, the fascinating world of bee pollination. And I've been studying them ever since then. I sort of left the wind pollination world behind and and continued and did my PhD in entomology at McGill, where I studied uh, bee pollinators of strawberry crops. Cool. Yeah. So to get us started, we're going to talk a lot about pollinators and pollination and all that stuff. So can you give me a quick rundown of like what defines a pollinator and what the process of pollination does? Yeah. So uh, basically, a pollinator is a, a pollen mover. So, so <laughs> pollen, pollen contains like the male genetic material of plants. It's like analogous to, to sperm. So, but since plants are stationary, they need the help moving the pollen from the male parts to the female parts of the flowers. It's basically just just pollination is plant sex. Can I say that on on this podcast? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think that'll be okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but the thing is, pollen can be in the same flower. It can be in a different flower. It can even be on a different plant. So it needs to be moved between those of the flowers or the plants to get to the female part to to cause fertilization and then produce seeds and fruit. And bees are our most important pollen movers. So these bees, they they've actually evolved with plants to use pollen as a food source. So an important thing to note is that bees aren't actively trying to pollinate plants. They're using the pollen for food. That's the protein source for their babies. So that they're trying to take the pollen from the flower. It's just, as they do this, it accidentally falls off on the parts of the, the flower that need it. So bees aren't, aren't doing a, a, the favor to the, well, they're doing a favor to the flower, but they kind of do it accidentally. Okay, so bees in general and like native bees especially have been getting a lot of attention in the past couple of years, but I honestly don't know what the difference is between a native bee and a non-native bee. So can you talk about how how to distinguish the two? Yeah, sure. But it's kind of a loaded question though too, because I think that 
uh, many of us call native bees anything that's not a honeybee. I think a lot of them we think, oh, if it, it's not managed, it must be a native bee. Right. But usually when I'm talking about it, I'll use the term wild bees because these are bees that are living in the wild instead of managed by humans. But na So actual native bees would be the bees that have um, sort of like evolved or occur naturally in our particular region or habitat. So these are the ones that have evolved with our plants and they're not from another part of the world and introduced to our area. But we do have wild bees that live like that. So mm -hmm. the leafcutter bees are a good example of that. We manage them but they can also escape and, and nest in the natural habitat around farms that they're not used for because they're, they're able to adapt to the conditions we have here. But that's like a, that's a non-native bee. Leafcutters, I think, are native to Southwest Asia or Northeast Europe, somewhere over there. I think they, they've came over here. I mean, the same with the honeybee, the, but the difference with the honeybee is it can't actually live in the wild. So we don't have wild honeybees. They really need to be managed by a beekeeper. And they can't really, we don't have feral honeybee colonies, especially in Northern Alberta. They would never survive. I think humans barely survive in Northern Alberta. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. Yeah, so we do, but I think in terms of agriculture, we talk about native bees as the, the non-honeybees or the, the bees that are coming in from natural environments and, and pollinating our crops. But I usually use wild bees just to be safe, just in case. Well, in the scientific world, I don't want to say native bees. And then it turns out it's an exotic or invasive species I've been talking about. But we right. can use native bees here today if you, if you want. <laughs> okay. But these are, I think that uh, the, the ones we're talking about are really the ones that are relying on the environment for food, water, shelter. They're not, they're not managed by humans. And they live around our crops and, and pollinate for us. But we're really, we're not actively managing them as humans. Right. Okay. So in a lot of agricultural circles, we've really started to discuss beneficial insects and microbial communities that make crop and animal production possible. And like some of the, the processes that we use that are harmful or beneficial to them. Yeah. So uh, in your opinion, what are some of the biggest things that affect populations of wild bees? So really habitat availability and the availability of flowers. Mm -hmm. If you think about it too, like even going back to the, the previous question, back in the day before we commercialized beekeeping of honeybees, farmers would be relying completely on these natural pollinators in their environments and farms would have been smaller and you would get all your pollination from the bees living in these natural habitats around your farm. And no, I should have said, said this already. Most of these bees live in the ground. I think, I think many people don't realize that most bees don't live like a honeybee. They don't live in a hive. They don't live in a colony. Most of these bees live in the ground. They, have, they dig these really complex tunnels. They fill it with pollen and then they'll lay their egg in the pollen and then it develops and the larva eats the pollen and it hatches and lives in the ground till the next year. So wow. these, yeah, and each bee is, each female bee is a queen, whereas in the, a colony of honeybees, you only have one queen and she's the only one having babies. Each of these bees has around five to 10 babies per year. So it's, it's very fewer numbers of these, of native and wild bees than honeybees, because most of them are solitary. Bumblebees are the one exception. They, they build small colonies, but, but not big like honeybees. There's only around 200 to 400 individuals in a bumblebee colony. But honeybees, it's 50,000 or more honeybees in one colony. 
So it's really like our native bees really live these solitary lives and they, they rely completely on the environment. So they need patches of bare ground to be able to build these nests. And then some of the other bees that aren't ground nesters nest in old dead wood, they'll nest in plant stems. These are our cavity nesters, like our leaf cutter bees are cavity nesters. Um, so really they need uh, intact habitat in farming areas to be able to build these nests and survive. And also because most of them live in the ground, if you're tilling your soil all the time, you're, you're digging up their nests and they're not gonna be able to survive in that environment. So the biggest thing is to have habitat for nesting for these bees. If you have areas of, of undisturbed ground, that, that's great for a ground nesting bee. But you, the second thing besides habitat is you need to have flowers. So all bees need pollen and nectar, that's their food. Um, so if you have a big crop like canola blooming a long time, that's great for bees. There's lots of nectar and pollen there. But when that, that bloom stops, if all you have in that landscape is canola and then the bloom is over, what food is left for the bees? Mm -hmm. So these, these, these bees, again, aren't like honeybees. Honeybees have a beekeeper taking care of them. So when there's floral scarcity, the beekeeper can come and feed them sugar solution, pollen patties, like they can take care of these bees. If there's nothing in the environment for the wild bees, they really, they don't, they don't have anything. So they, they won't survive. So you really have to have some nesting and habitat availability for these bees to live, but also have floral resources around their nest so that they can actually eat. The thing is too, the differences between a lot of our, our native bees and our uh, managed honeybees is that uh, native bees can't uh, go as far to find food. So we've done studies on honeybees where they can, not that they like to, but they will forage up to like a kilometer or two if they have to, to find food. Whereas our smaller bees, they sometimes only have a foraging range of about 500 meters or less. So if they're nesting in an area, they only have the ability to go around 500 meters from that nest to find food. So if nothing's there, if you mow all of the flowers that are there, then also <laughs> they have nothing left to eat. So really <laughs> providing habitat or leaving, even, even little places like, like shelter belts or hedgerows, like these are great places to conserve native bees because it does offer some undisturbed habitat and often flowers that are blooming outside of the, the crop period to, to provide food for a lot of these bees. And there's been several studies that show um, even just hedgerow, strips of hedgerows are, are really great to conserve our native bees. Interesting. Yeah, so really it's a, a lot of the regenerative ag practices, like I was saying before, are, would be really great for bees, like anything no-till farming, anything where you're protecting the soil is really great for these soil nesting bees. Most 70% of them live in the ground. So any, anything that you're doing for the ground or not spraying pesticides, it's obviously great for the native bees as well. That makes sense. So aside from these hedgerows and that sort of stuff, are there other ways to encourage native pollinators especially or just wild bees in general back into crops and particularly pasture systems. This is, and this is, I was thinking about this too. And it was kind of a question I had for you because from what I know, I know a lot about bees. I don't know a lot about livestock <laughs> and how it's managed. So I was thinking about this and a lot of the times, like when the farmer grazes the cattle or the buffalo or whatever, whatever livestock they have, 
are, do they often graze before flowering or are some of the, the pastures grazed after flowering? Because I was just thinking like that would be a great way to leave flowers if, it, if the animals ate the or grazed, what do you say? Ate, whichever grazed, it is. Either way. <laughs> it was grazed after, after flowering, hmm. but maybe that's bad for the animals. I don't know. Maybe that causes bloating. I don't know. Maybe they don't like to eat after flowering. Like I, I don't know enough about it. And that's what I was thinking. Well, if, if they could leave certain patches flower, then that provides food for the bees and then the, the cow can eat it later. But Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that's how it works. Do you know? <laughs> <laughs> it depends operation to operation. I know uh, we do try to graze before flowering a lot of times because once plants go to seed, they get a lot less palatable for, for animals okay. to eat. But the other thing is that in perennial pastures, especially you want to let them go to seed every three years approximately. So you want to rotate when you graze pastures uh, year over year so that different pastures are blooming, get a chance to bloom and set seed and all that sort of stuff. So it could be, maybe this is something we'll look at in the study. (laughs) Could it be that certain pastures are rotated on a schedule such that you have the ones that aren't flowering next to the ones that are, and then you're sort of providing a landscape that would be within the foraging range of bees that you, they would have some flowers in some spaces but not others mm-hmm. that could be something that, that we think more about yeah yeah that'd be really interesting to, to have a look at yeah because I know like if you're not you're not farming for seed production you don't I guess you wouldn't really care as much about pollination because mm-hmm. like in say alfalfa like you need the pollination to to produce the seeds but if you're just growing these crops for your animals to eat then you're less reliant on the the flowers and then seed production. So it'd be something to think more about how we could encourage more flowering in these types of grazing lands. Mm -hmm. If it's a a annual perennial system, it'd be something to think more about. Yeah. Well, and we talk a bit about uh, rejuvenation of these pastures because because, uh, seed set and stuff isn't a huge priority. They get worn out Mm -hmm. after a period of time. So that's something we, we have discussions about is, you know, if you let them set seed then and flower every so often, then they will kind of self-rejuvenate a little bit and you won't have to, okay. you won't have to break up the pasture and reseed and stuff, which is very expensive, quite as often. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, and then even like, if that's not a possibility, even providing small, there's been a couple of studies that show even small wildflower strips leaving more native wildflowers come back just on on marginal land Mm -hmm. is also great for bees like if you can't actually use the crop land to support pollinators there are several things you can do in the the land you're not using or the marginal land just to have more of our native wildflowers to support our native pollinators right there are small and, and i always push the the biggest thing is leaving just some undisturbed ground if you leave undisturbed patches uh, of soil for bees. Most of the ground nesting bees like sandy soil better than other types. But if you can leave patches undisturbed, like that's great habitat for these bees. I think a lot of people think they have to get these complex like bee hotels or uh, all these other types of habitat. Like really it is just dirt. Like they just need <laughs> some undisturbed dirt to, to nest in. But I think in farming systems, a lot of the time it, is, it, it isn't undisturbed. Mm-hmm. Like we're, we're tilling, we're constantly doing things to the soil. And, and that really doesn't do a lot for these bees that, that need that soil to nest in. That's interesting. I never thought soil health would be helpful to 
bees. <laughs> yeah, no, I think no, and I think that's it, the word of, isn't out there enough because a a few of a, other producer groups I spoke about about doing a a more pollinator regenerative egg project like that's been the response. We're like, oh, so the the, the soil is really important for these bees because I think the honeybee gets a lot of the publicity. Mm-hmm. We don't, and mm-hmm. we, we tend to think that oh, all bees are like the honeybee, but diversity in the the native and wild bee realm is just insane like we have even north america we have four thousand different bee species and they all have different ways they like to nest like yeah different in alberta i think there's three three thirty don't quote me on that but it's over 300 different wild bee species in alberta wow. in canada there's over 800 yeah we have and it, the, that's the thing like the diversity of their their life cycles or life history is just amazing but they all, so that's the thing, they all live in different ways and especially different from the honeybee. Like the honeybee is the only, you, we, well, bumblebees are eusocial, but this is the only other eusocial bee we have in, in Canada. And eusocial just means it lives in a colony. So mm. these bees live in a colony. And I think we all think that all bees live like that, but they, they don't at all. And honeybees are, are introduced in Canada. They, they, like I said, they don't live in the wild. They need us to manage them and they're great for crop pollination because we can't they will nest in these boxes that we can carry from crop to crop to provide pollination but to me it's kind of a conundrum because like I said before especially for farmers who have crops that need pollination like say apple you are then paying for these pollinators to come in to the honeybee to pollinate your crops when you could cultivate the natural habitat or provide habitat for these bees that live in the environment naturally and get your pollination for free but instead a lot of the time like we destroy the habitat that our wild bees need and we need these bees to pollinate the crops and then we have to buy another pollinator to come in and pollinate the crop like it's a yeah it's a weird it's a weird paradoxical situation that we've we've gotten ourselves in with pollination and that's nothing against the honeybee i love honeybees they're great pollinators but i think that there's a lot more that we can do to encourage our, our native pollinator populations, especially in terms of, of what we need for our crops. And even, like I mentioned, I studied strawberry before, so I can speak to strawberry. We found that um, some of the species in our, our wild bee populations, ours were really tiny bees in the, the genus Lassioglossum, it's called, were when the strawberries were pollinated by these bees, they produced strawberries that were 40% larger than those pollinated by honeybees. Wow. Yeah, and it, yeah, and we ended up, we did another study on it to see, okay, why is that the case? A lot of the time, honeybees, because they, they, they'll send workers out to forage and they kind of decide, okay, who's foraging for pollen today? Who's foraging for nectar? So they, they have this difference in what they're foraging on and they, and they stick to that. So a honeybee forager will go out and say, okay, I'm doing nectar today. So they just forage for nectar. And in strawberry, this means they're not contacting the pollen as often as they would if they were actively searching for pollen. So remember, I said it's all by accident anyway, pollination. But if they're actively collecting pollen, they're contacting the parts of the flower that hold the pollen, and then they're more likely to deposit that on the other flowers that need it. When they're looking for nectar, they kind of like sneak in the side of the flower, drink the nectar, and then leave. And so a lot, they're not really enacting pollination. And what we saw in strawberry is that we saw a lot of nectar foraging honeybees in strawberry. So they weren't doing a lot of the pollination. And then 
these small bees that they, in the genus Lasioglossum would really spend a ton of time in each flower, collect as much pollen as they could, and then go to the next one. So they really tended to pollinate much better the strawberry. And strawberries need, they need each little, like each little seed, it's called an akeen on the outside of a strawberry. Each one of those, that's actually the fruit. So each one of those little seeds you see needs to receive pollen before the, the flesh of the strawberry will grow. So when you see, sometimes you see a little indented strawberry, it means that little seed there didn't get pollinated. So the flesh around it didn't grow. Oh. So, yeah. So for growers of strawberry in Canada, I think we only have one grade of strawberry. So the strawberry has to be perfect for it to sell. So it's really important that all of those get pollinated. And, and that's what we saw in these wild bees is that they did a, a much better job than honeybees, especially in our area, because these bees, some of our native bees have evolved with these, these plants to... So they have a, an easier time working with the plant than a honeybee would who, who has to learn. That's a thing too. I'm sorry, I'm going all over the place. A lot of um, bees, it, when they encounter a new flower, they have to sort of learn how to manipulate it. And that takes time. Oh. But bees that have, a, have these like long-standing relationships with these flowers have an easier time. They know what to do. They know the flower structure. They know where to get the nectar, the pollen. Other bees... If it's a new flower, they're like, oh, we got to learn how to, how to manipulate this to get what we want from it. And sometimes that leads to differences in, in pollination. Mm. That's just to say we have this diversity of bees that have all these different foraging patterns and behaviors and life cycles. And this does lead to differences in pollination. And we also know that if you have a diversity of bees in your cropland, you're more likely to get this better pollination. And that can often result in increases in, in yield of some of our, our food crops that require mm -hmm. pollination. Fascinating. <laughs> yeah, there's so much in the whole world of pollination. I could, I could talk forever. It just, it's fascinating what we know and what we don't know. That's the, I think there's still so much to learn. A lot of our, our native bee species, we still don't know what their, their nesting preferences are and what, and that's what <laughs> say well I don't want to be slamming on the honeybee too much because <laughs> know so much about the honeybee biology and how they like to live and this is why they are great for crop pollination because we, we know how to take care of them we they will nest in these boxes we can move them around their mobile pollination units we can get pollination of these big big crops that are important for food for us so it, it is a great pollinator in that respect but we do have a lot of other great pollinators out there that I think could use our help and can actually help us. Mm -hmm. So on that note of, of the bees we know and the bees we don't, <laughs> um, in pasture assessment and even just general regenerative ag circles, uh, there's a lot of talk about indicators and indicator species. And uh, that we look at as a way to measure kind of what's changed in our system and, and progress that we're making. So birds are a really common one. Yeah or uh, native plants and that sort of stuff. So when and how should we be looking for signs of change in pollinators? Is there, is there something we can be watching for to kind of see if, uh, if we've got these wild bees or uh, ways we can just sort of see if there's things changing there? It's a little, you know, it's a little bit tougher for bees compared to birds because they're so tiny like they're harder to notice especially some of our native species can be smaller than five millimeters like you're not you're not actively going to be able to just visually 
look at changes in those populations. And that's, this is the problem in insect monitoring in general is that we, we really, we need more standardized monitoring programs so that we, we can see these changes and say, okay, yeah, we had a ton of pollinators over the years and now they're all dropping off. Like we, we really need more baseline data in the, the scientific world on insects. But in terms of what a farmer can do, just to be, I mean, the best would probably be bumblebees just because you can see them. <laughs> and it, it is, in Northern Alberta, there's a lot of uh, bumblebees because you need to be a pretty hardy bee to survive up there. So you do get a lot of bumblebee species. And if it is something like, hey, you, you took out your hedgerows last year and you used to see all sorts of bumblebees nesting and in and around your crops, and then you don't see them, well, then you might know, hey, I maybe inadvertently destroyed their habitat it would really, but it'd have to be something that you're consciously looking for, like saying, okay, am I, am I seeing a lot of bees out in the fields this year? And now I'm not, you'd have to really be looking because like I said, they're, they're small and, and easy to miss. And it, mm -hmm. that's the thing with, with honeybees, like even if honeybees in fields, if, you, if you're noticing, yeah, okay, I'm, a lot of honeybees are dying, then you can pretty much be sure that the native bees are probably having a harder time of it. Because if you're having a, a human managed bee and they're, they're dying, your, your native bees are, are probably in trouble as well but yeah it's a bit a bit tougher than than monitoring birds yeah. just call me call me and i'll come and have a look <laughs> there we go yeah <laughs> and we've mentioned a couple of times uh the gprc's got some projects coming up yeah. um and that sort of thing so speaking of being able to call you <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, what sort of what sort of projects are, are coming up i know you mentioned that this summer you're going to be working on wild managed bees and cropland? Yeah, so we're looking uh, specifically in canola this year. Um, I was talking to you a lot about natural land. So we know that natural land is, is important for bees, both managed and wild, but we kind of want to look more at, okay, what types of natural land are most important for bees? And specifically to look at uh, pollen and, and floral diversity in these lands. So this year we're looking at what is the most common type of natural land that you would find near a canola field? And what is the value of that land to a pollinator? So actually going into the, the canola fields and uh, measuring adjacent areas, measuring the, the floral diversity in the natural land, and then looking at the pollen diversity too, to say, okay, are we providing food outside of the, the crop bloom period for these bees? And this is this translating into a higher bee diversity in these lands and also bee health. So at the NBDC, we do a lot of diagnostic testing and looking for pathogens and diseases uh, of managed bees. So we're going to be extending that more to, to native and wild pollinators as well to see, okay, are, are bees that are in these areas with more natural land, are they healthier? And are we seeing more bee species in these areas where, where there's more habitat, potential habitat for them? So then we can say, because it's been, um, and I'm just hearing this tangentially, that a lot of the, the farmers in the area are kind of removing shelter belts and hedgerows. And like a lot of the time, the, this natural land is being taken out. So if we can say, hey, this is, this is really beneficial for our, our pollinator communities and, and for your crops, then maybe they might think twice about removing it. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And then after that, so we're going to start looking at more regenerative, ag regenerative agriculture practices in general. Um, in 2023, we're going to do more projects looking at, okay, what are the effects of no-till farming? Like actually in the cropland, how are we 
how do some of these practices help support both our native bee diversity and bee health in general? Awesome. So uh, you mentioned people should call you if they <laughs> monitor bees. <Yeah. laughs> um, but where can people go for more information on pollinators, pollination in general, even like some of GPRC's projects, that sort of stuff? Um, well, for bees in general, the Xerces Society, and I can put it a link here for you, it's kind of the go-to for any sort of bee conservation, anything. Um, and they have, they actually have a 82 page document on bringing native pollinators back into farms. So that's a really great resource for all things bees on farms here. I'll paste it here. And then pollinator, yeah, pollinator partnership is another good one too that, um, does a lot in terms of, of bees on farms. And I think even across Canada, they have a, a pollinator friendly farm certification you can get. And it's not, it's only a couple of things I think you have to do. It's just showing that you're actively trying to, to help pollinator diversity. And it's, if you, I think there might even be a financial incentive. I'm not sure of not pollinator partnership, but another organization where if you're doing things to support pollinators on your farm, you can, get either a certification or maybe a little cash for it. <laughs> but, um, and in terms, we need to update our website right now. Is that just at the NBDC? Um, I'm not, I'll paste that one in too. But with the name change, because now we may be Northwestern Polytechnique soon. So there's going to be a lot of, I think, updates on the website and rebranding of sorts. And then I can send you, they can find more of our, our work on both managed and wild bees. Cool. Oh, one more question. Uh, we've mentioned the NBDC a couple of times. Can you talk a little bit mm -hmm. about what that is and, and that sort of stuff? Sure. It's a, I just, I just assume everyone knows, <laughs> but that's, <laughs> uh, it's the National Bee Diagnostic Center. So this is a, a laboratory for bee diagnostics. It's actually national across Canada, and we get samples from all over the world, actually, that's testing uh, mostly honeybees for, for diseases that affect them or pathogens and viruses um, and parasites. So it's really testing honeybees and keeping an eye on their health across Canada. And then we work with researchers and industry and anyone involved in that industry who wants to, to either uh, test their honeybees, but also we we are extending into leafcutter bees in the next few years, and then also doing some through me and more wild pollinator health assessments. So it's really it's in it's a really uh, comprehensive and national laboratory in northern Alberta that maybe a lot of people don't know about, but it's a, an amazing molecular lab. So we do everything through uh, DNA analysis. It's um, really high tech in, in Northern Alberta. This is a, a world-class lab that we have here. Cool. Yeah. Come and talk to us anytime. Also, we may, we're going to be looking for help in the field this season. So a lot of the projects I'm talking about, will be looking for students or any other, anyone else interested in insects or field work. We'll be looking to, to hire a couple of people to help us collect bees this summer. Right on. Alrighty. Well, thank you very much for doing this. Uh, I'll put those links down in the description of the podcast so people can find them. Okay. And uh, 
That was awesome. Great. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. We'll talk soon. Peace Country Beef and Forage Association is a research and extension group based out of Fairview, Alberta. Our mission is to help producers thrive in an agricultural system that is profitable, regenerative, and attractive to future generations. To learn more about what we do and see the results of our research trials or our archive of newsletters and fact sheets, check out our website at peacecountrybeef.ca. Want to get in touch? Have a burning question or a topic suggestion? Send us a message on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.